So Andy, I know who you are, but for our listeners, for the very first time, can you please tell everyone who you are? Yes, my name's Andy Cullison. I am the Phyllis W. Nicholas Director of the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Oh boy. Yes. And what are we doing here? Uh, We're doing a podcast. Yeah. Yeah, we are. We're doing a podcast called Getting Ethics to Work. Uh Uh-huh. We kicked around a lot of different possible titles, but we we really liked this one uh, for a couple of reasons, because it had that kind of double meaning to it, right? Mm -hmm. It was getting ethics to work in terms of like bringing ethics and bringing moral reasoning to the table to help solve or navigate any kind of challenges you face in the workplace. Right. But also getting ethics to work for you as in sort of like, look, ethics, the study of ethics can work for you. It can do work for you. It can it can help you and it can help make your work life easier. Right. It doesn't just belong in a book. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a bit different uh, than I think what some folks might think of when they use the word ethics. Yeah. Okay. Ethics, unfortunately, I think is ambiguous. Uh, there's the way it gets used in the corporate world. And there's the way it gets used in the, what you might call the academic world. Mm-hmm. And they're just very different senses of the word. Okay. I mean, it's like, uh, I, I mean, it's almost like the ambiguity of the word bat, right? There's the thing with wings and there's the <laughs> thing that baseball players swing. And these words just mean totally different things. And you wouldn't bring one to the other. Right, right? exactly. You try to hit, hopefully you wouldn't try to hit a baseball with yeah, a yeah. flying thing mammal. With wings, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Um, so in, in the corporate world, ethics uh, often gets associated with things like compliance uh, or learning what the rules are. Yeah. So a quote-unquote ethical person in the workplace would be one who follows the rules, who doesn't break the law. It's very much a rules-based approach to just making sure that your company is compliant with whatever regulations and norms there are for the industry you're in. And that's about it. And so the idea of uh, studying ethics uh, would be like studying the Ten Commandments or something, just reading a list of rules, hmm. making sure you know what the rules are, and that's that's it. I think I could say that other ethics, ethics in the other sense of the word, are not that simple. Yeah, yeah, it's not like that. So ethics in the other sense of the word, it's better to think of it as almost like a discipline or an area of study like history mm-hmm. or philosophy or English. As with, with any discipline, there are interesting questions uh, that are hard to know the answers to, like what is right, what is wrong, what is the nature of right and wrong, but also about more practical things like is it wrong to do this in the workplace might be an example. And what you're basically trying to do is cultivate a set of skills that help you navigate difficult, complicated, moral, or ethical dilemmas, and you're trying to bring uh, good principled reasoning to bear on that. And so it's a very different sort of thing Mm -hmm. than just learning what the rules are. Uh, Ethics in this sense is more about developing a set of skills that help you navigate these difficult, complicated issues. And that's a very different thing from compliance. And often it's the kind of thing uh, that you need to be good at when compliance rules don't tell you what to do. Right. We do some consulting on leadership. And the thing I like to tell leaders in companies is what you want in your workforce. You want people who know what the compliance rules are, but you also want someone who has a deep, rich understanding of what the moral foundations are 
that yeah. led to the compliance rules in the first place. Oh, okay. You want them to know why the rules are the way they are. You actually want them to be the sort of person who's like, oh, wait, something's wrong here. We might need a rule, right? So ethics in this sense is sort of fills in the gaps mm -hmm. that compliance doesn't cover. Okay. So is the podcast mostly going to be talking about compliance cases? Well, no. Um, some of the cases we want to talk about are going to look on the face like they're compliance cases. But what I think the real kernel of the show is, is I think moral dilemmas are pretty much everywhere. Hmm. I think that whenever there's a conflict between people, um, even if it doesn't look like it's a moral conflict or an ethical conflict, I think uh, I could tease out where the value tension is or where the ethical tension is. Okay. And so I think there are things that happen in daily work life that are at their core ethical dilemmas. And I think they're hard to spot. Um, they're really hard to spot. So, uh, and I think this happens in two kinds of cases. Let's see. There are the ordinary compliance cases. They're the kinds of things that you might sit down at a three-hour workshop and, you know, Bob is telling Sue to lie about the books. What should Sue do? And on the face of it, you're going to look at that and roll your eyes and you're going to think, well, of course Sue shouldn't lie to like cook the books or whatever. And that's what I think makes thinking about compliance cases or the thought of thinking about compliance cases painful. Um, but even in those compliance cases where there's a an obvious moral question and what most people would think is an obvious answer, there are usually loads of interesting moral dilemmas in the background that people might not be thinking about. Um, usually moral dilemmas about how to go about doing the thing. And there's really difficult moral questions to be asked about how to go about doing the thing that you think is obviously the right thing to do. So there's, that's, that's one kind of case. Okay. And the other? The other is, as I said before, there are all sorts of disputes in everyday life that I think people don't quite realize are at their core disputes about values hmm. or disputes about ethical issues. This idea sort of came from, well, two people. Okay. Um, or two groups of people. One is Aristotle. All right. <laughs> Not bad. Uh, there's this uh, joke amongst philosophers about which area of philosophy is like the most important. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's this phrase, ethics is first philosophy, uh, which is supposed to mean something like, that's the thing you need to figure out first. I see. Right? Okay. Um, and, you know, there's all this discussion about, well, why would you think that? Why might someone think that ethics is first philosophy? My own take on that is that because you might think before you decide which areas of philosophy to pursue, any decision about which area to pursue is going to have baked into it assumptions about this is the better thing to do. Or mm -hmm. This is the good thing to do. Mm -hmm. or this is the permissible thing to do. Mm -hmm. So basically any decision about what to do, which area of philosophy to pursue has an assumption, it is morally permissible to go about this way. And you only know that. If you figured ethics out first. I see, okay. I, I sort of have this attitude that all of our decisions in our daily life basically have some background assumptions that what I am doing is okay. Yeah. So you already have made certain kinds of moral, you've taken certain moral stances with basically any decision that you make. Even if you don't realize it, Even right? Even if you don't realize okay. it, yeah. And anything you're doing in the background, you're like, this is okay to be doing. Yeah. Well, any belief that this is okay to be doing has some assumptions about the nature of right and wrong. 
And so anything you do has moral assumptions baked into it. Um, so that that's sort of one thought. Yeah. Even more in the sort of uh, areas related to business and leadership, uh, I taught a course called The Philosophy and Ethics of Management and Leadership. Interesting. Okay. Um, and one of the articles I really like to teach in that class is this very accessible Harvard Business Review article by uh, Ronald Heifetz and Donald Lorry. Mm -hmm. uh, Ronald Heifetz is the founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at the John F. Kennedy School at Harvard University. Not bad. Not bad. And they have this article, uh, it's called The Work of Leadership. And in that article, they basically identify what they think is the core thing a leader in an organization is supposed to do, mm -hmm. which is navigate the organization through what they call adaptive challenges. So there's a very common thread here that what leaders do is sort of navigate organizations through change. Okay. And the really important kinds of change that Heifetz and Lori think leaders are supposed to navigate an organization through All right. are what they call adaptive challenges. Um, and then they have some steps that they outline and they say, okay, first step is you got to figure out what it is. You got to identify those. So you got to mm -hmm. be good at identifying what those adaptive challenges are. And they have this great anecdote about British Airways back in the 80s. I'm drawing a blank on the CEO's name. It was Colin Marshall. So he was the C he's the new CEO in the 80s. And at the time, British Airways had the, the BA. Their nickname was Bloody Awful. Oh. They just had a reputation <laughs> for being a horrible airline. And so this guy Marshall comes in. And he's like, okay, we got to turn this, we got to turn this organization around. And so they just did a whole bunch of things to try and figure out, okay, what's going on here? And one of the things that Heifetz and Lori noted about what Marshall and his team did is they started to realize that adaptive challenges almost always involved underlying tensions and values. So here's a little quote from the article: Marshall and his team saw these conflicts as clues or symptoms of adaptive challenges hmm. and that disputes over seemingly technical issues such as procedures, schedules, and lines of authority were in fact proxies for underlying conflicts about values and norms. So hmm. unpacking all of this, uh, putting sort of Aristotle together with Heifetz and Lori, yeah. I mean, basically what they're saying is Anytime you have this dispute, even if it looks like it has nothing to do with ethics, my hot take on this is it has everything to do with ethics. And so I thought a podcast that sort of focused on helping folks sort of, A, appreciate that point yeah, uh, with some very vivid real world examples uh, where they could sort of practice teasing out what these underlying value tensions are whenever there's some kind of thorny question about what to do in the workplace. Right. I thought that would be a kind of good, useful podcast. Because if Heifetz and Lori are right, and I think they are, we could be in situations at every moment of our lives where we're in a moral dilemma and we don't even realize it. Yeah. And I like the description of the tensions as symptoms, right? And it may be in the workplace, you may think some tension you're experiencing is the symptom of a certain illness that maybe you don't get along with your boss or you don't understand why people get upset when you just um, sort of march ahead with a project that you're really enthusiastic about. But you may be misdiagnosing the illness. Absolutely. They, they talk about conflicts over schedules, for example. Um, maybe the challenge in the workplace is 
ah, we're having a hard time coordinating our calendars. And, you know, you think that sounds, okay, that's a technical issue. Maybe some software could help. Maybe yeah. we need a new calendaring system. But maybe that scheduling conflict and we're having difficulty getting our schedules aligned, maybe it's really an issue about whose job it is mm -hmm. to be keeping track of schedules. And maybe the question about whose job it is to keep track of schedules sort of boils down to um, that person has no right to think that I should be the one doing this. And suddenly what looks like, oh, we've got a software problem with coordinating our schedules. It's really a fundamental clash of beliefs about rights and justice in the workplace. Yeah, that's tricky and probably not obvious. So then you've got a lot of people bopping around at work who don't realize why they're fighting. Yeah, and this is, I think, uh, what can lead to a lot of toxic culture in the workplace. Part of what made me start thinking about this idea is also um, kind of loosely related to something that doesn't seem like it would be related. Uh, I was reading an article about strategies for negotiations. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really stuck in this article was this phrase, and it was something like, uh, the worst negotiation to be in is the one that you don't realize you're in. Uh, and, yeah. and so the idea is, you know, we often think about negotiations as planned sorts of things where I'm puffing myself up to go into the boss to ask for a raise. Right. I've or, got my offer. You've got your counter yeah, offer. Yeah, yeah. We both know what we're doing. We sort of got the battle lines drawn. Yeah, exactly. I've got this property to sell. I'm trying to sell it to this person. Um, and it's very easy to sort of have this myopic view about negotiations. Mm -hmm. uh, but the reality is you could find yourself in negotiations all over the place. Uh, you know, a coworker comes in and says hey, could you help me with this thing? Uh, you've built up a reputation for yourself as being able to do this thing really quickly. And maybe you've, maybe you've sugarcoated that a bit because you like getting the props around the office sure. for being a whiz kid at this thing. Yeah. But the reality is that's a huge time suck for you. Mm. But you didn't want anybody else to know it. Right. Um, and so someone casually asks you this thing. Uh, you're like, eh, no, I'm not really sure. And they're like, please, I'll do this. And I mean, you're in a negotiation and you might not even realize it. Right. That's not the traditional thing we think of exactly. with negotiation. Yeah, exactly. And then related to the Heifetz and Lori and Aristotle stuff, I started thinking, you know, that that's true about moral dilemmas as well. I mean, if if you are in a moral dilemma and I'm in a similar moral dilemma, but I don't realize it's a moral dilemma, I am in a much worse position than you are because you are already halfway toward resolving this conflict. If, if moral dilemmas are the root, or if moral disputes mm -hmm, or moral mm -hmm. disagreements are the root of most disputes, just merely being able to identify what that dispute or tension or disagreement is puts you in a way better position to make headway on resolving this conflict. Let's go back to the calendaring, right? If I think it's a technical thing, I don't realize it's a moral dilemma. And you realize, no, it's actually just a dispute about who gets is... to tell people what. Exactly. Who gets to tell people what to do. Mm -hmm. um, then you're already, I mean, more than halfway yeah. toward resolving the issue. I mean, you've zeroed in on the tension and I'm just like waving around in the dark. So can you give me another example, maybe with this scheduling idea of a moral dilemma that isn't obviously a moral dilemma? So let's say... You've got John and you've got Tom. And let's say John is the team leader. 
Okay. And Tom is one of the supporting engineers, something like that. And John really wants the staff meetings on Tuesdays. And Tom wants it on Mondays. But maybe uh, what's going on is Tom knows that John's assistant usually isn't in on Tuesdays. And when John's assistant isn't in on Tuesdays, John suddenly treats like everyone else, like they're his immediate assistant. Mm. Uh, and suddenly Tom is taking minutes for the meeting. Uh, but Tom's like, I, I shouldn't be taking minutes for the meeting. That's I, not my job. I, it's not my job. And I need to pay attention to what's going on in the meeting because yeah. I'm the one who walks away with actionable to-dos from the meeting. Mm. And so, it, but if I spend my time trying to get meeting minutes accurate, like I'm not going to be paying attention to my immediate to-dos. I'm not going to be as involved in the discussion. And so really what's going on is Tom has a fundamental objection to the way John operates. He thinks John operates in a way that's not fair. Uh, and so what he's doing is trying to get the meeting to happen at a time when he doesn't find himself in that situation. Without telling his manager, Instead of just I don't like, like how you do this. Exactly. Instead of just like, let's get this out on the table. So, yeah. but, but again, what looks like a technical dispute about logistics and meeting scheduling, what's going on underneath all of that is Tom has a kind of moral disagreement with John that hasn't come to the surface yet about yeah. fairness in the workplace. Gosh, this is giving me flashbacks of basically every argument I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> so who would you say the show is for? Well, the easy answer is anybody who goes to work. <laughs> <laughs> if all disputes have at their core some kind of moral dilemma, um, then anybody who goes to work, unless you magically avoid conflicts in the workplace. That'd be nice. Yeah, and we'd like to have you on the show. Um, but... The literature is just loaded with examples uh, that show if someone is good at this thing called moral reasoning, it demonstrably translates into uh, effective leadership. And if you look at the Harvard Business Review articles that I've been talking about, the Heifetz and Lori, but there are a lot of other Harvard Business Review articles that come out about every four to five years mm -hmm. uh, where somebody purports to have identified the quote-unquote secret sauce to leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, sort of here are the five traits of the effective leader. And if you look at their language, um, and maybe we can put this on the show notes page, sure. what they identify as an effective leadership trait either just is a moral reasoning skill, like moral awareness mm -hmm. or the ability to reason through a moral dilemma, and they're just using different language to talk about it. So it either is a moral reasoning skill or it's a skill that you probably couldn't be good at unless you were already good at moral reasoning. Hmm. So when people ask me, what should companies invest in when it comes to training leaders? I'm like, put almost all your eggs in the moral reasoning basket. This is really the kind of thing you should be focused on in terms of leadership development. And if you are a high potential leader in your organization, then I think it would serve you very well to spend some time thinking about developing your moral reasoning skills. And one of the best ways to develop those skills, again, there's data on this to back it up, one of the best ways to develop those skills is to think through moral dilemmas like the kind we're going to be thinking through on this show and learn how to unpack them the way we're going to unpack them on this show. So what could a listener expect from a show? 
Well, we're going to take what's called a case study approach to ethics, uh, where what we will do is we'll lay out some real-world dilemma that you might find yourself in. Um, it could be what seems like a boring compliance case. Mm. And what we do is say, hey, even though this looks like a boring compliance case, there's a lot of interesting moral dilemmas lurking on the periphery that we should be paying attention to. And if you ever find yourself in these kinds of situations, maybe you'll be better at identifying that you're in one of those situations and have some kind of idea about what you might do or say in that situation. That might be one kind of case. We might look at other kinds of just workplace disputes and try and tease out what could the underlying value tensions be here. Mm -hmm. And then kind of do the messy work of weighing what should someone do in a situation like this and lay out some options. Maybe give some vocabulary. Yeah. Um, that might have been difficult to come up with without this sort of training. Yeah, yeah. Uh, help you get vocabulary to talk about this stuff. You know, another thing I find is that people are often really good at identifying that something is not the right thing to do. Yeah. But where they are feeling like they could use some help is being able to try and explain that to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So we all get this gut feeling that something's not right. But then we don't know, like, well, how do I explain that to somebody else? I mean, I know it's wrong, but I'm having a hard time trying to explain why this thing is wrong. And that's one of the things that you can benefit from studying ethics yeah. and studying our approach is you do start to develop a way of talking about the things you encounter in the workplace. So you could actually stand up and be like, hey, uh, this is wrong. And there are these like three reasons why I think this is wrong. And you sort of, you have the vocabulary, you have the manner of speaking, and, and you're sort of ready to go. Well, that sounds like a good reason to listen. I think it's a very good reason to listen. And I hope you will continue to listen. I've been talking to Andy Cullison, the director of the Prindle Institute at DePaul University. All the articles he referred to will be linked to in our show notes page. I'm Kate Berry. And I'm Andy Cullison. And I hope you join us for Getting Ethics to Work. And hopefully we can get ethics to work for you. If you want to learn more about what we talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org backslash getethicstowork. That's all one word, getethicstowork. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It is the best way for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at www.sessions.blue. Our show is made possible with the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.